Tonight, we are going to look at our topic entitled A Bold Attack. This is part two of our subject on the Antichrist. And before we begin, um, I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening as we open the Bible together, we pray for your spirit to be with us. I pray that, your, that each mind will be guided as we look at Scripture by your the Holy Spirit and help us to not only comprehend but also to love the truth as it is in Jesus. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight, before we launch into the topic, I want to just give you that quote one more time. So remember what I said. There will come some presentations in the seminar that may be challenging for you. And I want to just say it this way. If it's true, it will agree with God's law Jesus and the Word of God. Does that make sense? And if it's true, then don't be afraid of the truth. Because many people are more interested in being in blissful ignorance because if it's true, it might require a change. Does that make sense? So I think there was a famous movie line, like, you can't handle the truth. I think that was one of the famous uh, American cinema lines. But don't be that person. Don't be afraid of the truth. Okay, so let's launch into our presentation. If you remember last night, we saw that Daniel had a dream, and he saw a beast, a lion with eagle's wings, which symbolized Babylon. Do you remember that? What was the creature that came next? It was a bear, and that bear symbolized the kingdom of Media and Persia. It was lopsided because Persia was more powerful than Media. It had three ribs in its mouth, which symbolized Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon, right? And then we also saw that there was a leopard. It had four heads, and we said in our quiz earlier, these four heads symbolized the four generals which distributed Alexander's empire after his death. We learned that the swiftness of, of this leopard was fitting for this kingdom of Greece because definitely Greece conquered the world and all of the territories that belonged to Babylon and Medo-Persia in just 12 short years, and even, even further than that. Then we learned about Rome, and this creature we saw in Daniel 7, what kind of teeth did it have? What were the teeth made out of? Iron teeth, you remember that? And these iron teeth corresponded with the iron legs of the image in Daniel chapter 2. Also, the beast had how many horns on its head? Ten horns, and it was a symbol that after this kingdom ruled, it would be divided. It wouldn't be conquered by a more powerful kingdom, but it would simply become divided into 10 divisions. Then we saw the 11th horn, and when we talked about this 11th horn, we talked about 12 marks of identity. We said that most churches today, I don't think there's a single exception, almost every denomination would agree that the little horn of Daniel 7 represents the Antichrist. But if you ask them, who is the Antichrist? You will get many different interpretations, or you would get roughly three, three different explanations. But I remind you, yesterday we said that this little horn would arise among the divisions of the Roman Empire. It would be a small kingdom. It would destroy three kingdoms that stood in its way. It would persecute God's people. It would arise after the 10 came up, which is after 476. It would be both political and religious. He would think that he could forgive sins or he would claim to be God. He would think that he could change God's law. He would rule for 1260 literal years or three and a half prophetic years. It would be a worldwide power 
at the end of the three and a half prophetic years, or 1260 literal years, it would receive a deadly wound, and then the deadly wound would be healed, prophecy said. So last night, I kind of left you with a cliffhanger. Who do these 12 marks of identity point to? Well, according to Bible prophecy, they point to the Roman Catholic Church system. Now, I want to be very careful how I say this, because I don't want you to get the wrong idea. When we talk about the Roman papacy being the fulfillment of the Antichrist, we are not in any way disparaging the Catholic Church down the road or people that attend the Catholic Church. If that's clear, can you say amen? So some of you may be struggling. How can you distinguish between the system and the people? Well, it's simple. Do you remember that the Jewish nation, they rejected the Messiah? Isn't that right? But were there Jews that still, still accepted Jesus? Were there yes or no? There were. In the same way, in the same way, the nation was the system that rejected Christ, but there were still faithful Jews that still accepted the Messiah. In the same way, I, I would be willing to venture that in this local Catholic church, there are some wonderful, maybe all of them are just wonderful, faithful, committed Christians, and I have no need to in any way detract from that. But I want you to understand that prophecy points to this ancient system as being the fulfillment of the Antichrist. Now, just in case you think, well, this is just some seminar that this guy is holding, I want you to know that historically, almost all of the denominations that arose during the Protestant Reformation held this view of who the Antichrist was. Many of the great Christians of the Reformation and post-Reformation times shared this view of prophetic truth and identified the Antichrist with the Roman papacy. Among adherents of this interpretation were the Waldenses, the Hussites, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Tyndale, Latimer, and Ridley. Leaders such as Luther, Calvin, Knox, Cranmer pointed to Daniel 7 and Revelation 17, identifying the great apostasy with headquarters in Rome. The scriptural basis, the scriptural message of Revelation 18:4 formed the basis of many of their sermons. Come out of her, my people that you be not partakers of her sins. This is what John Wycliffe said about the Pope. He said the Pope is the Antichrist here on earth. Now, that's not technically so accurate because, as we said, that it's not a person, it's the system. Does that make sense? So let's move on. This is Martin Luther. By the way, what church was Martin Luther a part of? And don't say he was Lutheran because he wasn't. He was Catholic, right? So think about this. Oh, how much pain it had caused me though I had the scriptures on my side, that I should dare to make a stand alone against the Pope and hold him forth as Antichrist. Twas so I fought with myself and with Satan till Christ, by his own infallible word, fortified my heart against these doubts. Now, let me point something out. Imagine you've been attending a church all your life, and then you study the Bible, and you discover that that church is the Antichrist system. Do you think that would be, that would be some, there would be some internal struggle, wouldn't there? Well, that's what Martin Luther is describing. He's saying the only thing that could help him see that he was on the right track is because he had the Bible on his side. Does that make sense? All right. So let's review these characteristics and let's see if the papacy fulfills what we talked about as far as the power of, of the papacy being the Antichrist fulfillment. Number one, it says that it would arise among the divisions of the Roman Empire. Did the Vatican, did the papacy arise in this part of the world, yes or no? That's not hard to know. That's definitely true. Um, it's a little horn, okay? It's a little kingdom. And I think that according to the, 
um, United Nations, it is actually the smallest country in the world. Like literally, it is the smallest country in the world. Did it destroy three kingdoms that stood in its way? Yes. So all of the kingdoms, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, they had something in common. They did not accept the authority of the Catholic Church in religious matters. Because of that, the Catholic, the, the papacy had a vendetta and sought to wipe them out. It didn't happen all at once. But the Heruli kingdom met their fate with the Catholic Emperor Zeno. Justinian destroyed the Vandals, and then he also destroyed the Ostrogoths. Now, please don't, don't miss this point. When prophecy says he would pluck up three horns, the third horn was plucked up in the year 538 AD. Now, why am I pointing this out? Because if you want to know how long he rules for, you have to count from when all of his opponents were removed. Does that make sense? He had three opponents, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. The third of them was uprooted in the year 538. If that's clear, can you say amen? That's important because this is how we determine when this power began to be both a political and religious power in the world. As I said, Three of those kingdoms, the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, there's nobody left alive from these tribes. They were just like genocide, just wiped out completely. Now, we also said that this power would be a persecuting power. This is a fact. The church has persecuted. Only a novice in church history would deny that. We have defended the persecution of the Huguenots and the Spanish Inquisitions. When she thinks it good to use physical force, she will use it. There's some famous examples of this. Um, in Paris, there was a day when the soldiers were sent to massacre a Protestant group called the Huguenots. It was, uh, this became known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Why did they kill them? Because this group of people did not acknowledge the authority of the papacy. They wouldn't go and confess their sins to a priest. As a result, they were exterminated. And some of you may know, like the, the, during the Dark Ages, there was some tortures and a lot of these ugly things that happened. If you want to read about it, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs that really goes into great, probably too much detail. But some of these instruments you see there on the screen, like that wheel-like device, it's called the rack. They would literally like dismember people that metal fire extinguisher looking thing was called the Iron Maiden. Someone would go inside, they would close the door, and all the vital organs would be pierced by spikes that would go right through the body. These were means by which the Catholic Church tried to coerce faithful Christians to accept the authority of the papacy. And you know what? They don't hide it. They actually have apologized for some of the mistakes that they've made in times past. Some would say that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution. Did you know some scholars estimate that during the Dark Ages, there were between 50 to 200 million people that were killed as a direct order from the Catholic Church. So this is not just like a little blip on history. This is a significant uh, 
determined and deliberate extermination of people that opposed their ideology. Okay, so did it arise after the divisions of the Roman Empire? Yes, let's review. What date did we say marked the religious and political ascendancy of the papacy? What was the date that that third horn was plucked up? When was that? 538. So this fits because it was after 476 AD. Now, was it different from the first 10? Yes, absolutely. The papacy is a church. Isn't that true? And there's no, if you go to the United Nations, there's no table, there's no seat for the Presbyterian Church. There's no seat for the Baptist Church. There's no seat for a non, no. But the Vatican, the Holy See, it has its own seat. It is both a church and a state power. Does that make sense combined into one? Do they claim to, or do they speak blasphemies? Well, this is from the catechism. When they go into that confessional, here's what the catechism teaches. Does the priest truly forgive the sins? Or does he only declare that they are remitted? In other words, when the person goes into the confessional and confesses, is the priest forgiving or is he just telling them what God has done? Answer, the priest does really and truly forgive sin by, in virtue of the power given to him by Christ. Now again, folks, according to the Bible, this would not be in harmony with biblical teaching. This would be considered blasphemy. This is what the Pope, they, they write these encyclicals, and this is what he claimed. We hold upon this earth the place of who? God Almighty. Again, that would be considered blasphemy. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Okay, did this power think that they could change God's law? Well, if you go to the Catechism, you will discover that the Ten Commandments look different. So most people know that there are how many commandments? Ten. I mean, there's a movie called The Ten Commandments. They, they knew they couldn't get away with just removing one. So what they did is, you know, the second commandment forbids the worship of idols, right? If you know anything about, and it's not so much in the States. I have, by the way, I have family members that are Catholic. They're all physicians, and they all are Catholic. And wonderful people, by the way. But what's interesting is, if, like, I've been to Costa Rica, I've been to the Philippines. Some of these countries are much more devout. And you would be amazed at the veneration that they place on certain objects, okay? Now, that's why in their catechism, they remove the second commandment. And then, since they know, everybody knows that there's 10 commandments, they had to do something. So what do they do? They split the 10th commandment into two. And so the ninth and 10th commandment in the catechism talks about coveting, you know, things, and, and both of them talk about covetousness. So that's how they handled that change. Now, did this power rule for 1260 years? Well, let's see. From 538, which is when that little horn was plucked up, if we go 1260 years, we come to the year 1798. According to prophecy, something would happen. He would receive a deadly wound. And that's what happened. In 1798, not one year more, not one year less, Napoleon's general Berthier came into the Vatican. It was Pius VI there on the throne at the time. He brought him to France, put him in prison where he died, and they declared the Vatican a republic. Now, I cannot stress this enough. 
According to prophecy, this happened exactly on time, from the time that the papacy rose. Now, I want to be clear. The Catholic Church existed before 538. 538 marked when it was both a political and a religious power combined into one. And when it received its deadly wound, it simply lost its political power. It still maintained its religious power. Does that make sense? And it's still a church even to this very day. Now, some of you are sitting here right now and you're saying, wait, this, this, doesn't, fit, this doesn't fit with what I've always been taught because I've been taught that the Antichrist is one person. So the, the confusion comes from a passage that Paul wrote about. I want you to look at this with me. 2 Thessalonians 2, look closely. Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means for that day. Now, if you read the context of this chapter, that day is referring to the second coming. That day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. In Greek, the Greek word is the Greek word apostasia. It just means apostasy. And that who, everybody? Man of sin. Now, can you see that if you, if you read that phrase, man of sin, you automatically think it's talking about a person. Does that make sense? When Paul uses the expression man of sin, he is using that expression to describe the Antichrist. Now, please look closely. He talks about another name for the Antichrist. He calls him the son of what? Perdition. So here are two names that he uses for the Antichrist. He calls him the man of sin and what else? The son of perdition. Let's keep going. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Now let's pause. How do we know that Paul is talking about the Antichrist? It's very simple. He says that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Now, i got to explain something. The word antichrist in Greek, it actually means instead of Christ. Now, I know that's going to surprise some of you because anti does mean against, but you can be against God in two ways. You could be an atheist and deny him, or you could pretend to be him and have people look to you instead of God, and you would still be going against God. Does that make sense? This power, notice, he or that is worshipped so that he as God sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is what? So do you see that this power, it is the Antichrist, but not in the traditional sense of against Christ. It is instead of Christ. Do you see that? Let's keep going. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the what? Mystery of iniquity. This is another name he gives the Antichrist. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that what? Wicked. This is the fourth name that Paul gives the Antichrist. Shall be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his what? Okay, let's review something. So I'm going to go back. And I want you to notice with me the four names. Let's review. He calls him the man of sin. He calls him the son of perdition. Now I'm going to pause for a moment. Did you know that that expression, son of perdition, it only appears one other place in the Bible. In John 17, Jesus was praying for his disciples and he labeled one of them the son of perdition. Who do you think he labeled that? Judas. Judas. Now please don't miss this. Judas 
on the outside looked just like the other 11 disciples. Does that make sense? But secretly, Judas was working against Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, did you notice that Paul calls the Antichrist the son of what? Perdition. The Antichrist is not an atheist. It's not a, a, a uh, agnostic. No, the Antichrist is some system that looks exactly like a Christian on the outside, but secretly it is working against God. Does that make sense? Let's keep going. He also calls him, he says, for the mystery of iniquity. Now let's pause. When you go to the, through the New Testament, Paul writes about these two mysteries. The mystery of godliness. You know what the mystery of godliness is? It's how God could become a man. That's a really a great mystery if you think about it, right? But the mystery of iniquity is the opposite. The mystery of iniquity is how a man tries to make himself like God. And don't miss this. Notice what Paul said. The mystery of iniquity doth already what? Now, please don't miss this. Was the Antichrist system, was the seed of it already in existence in Paul's day, yes or no? Yes. He said the mystery of iniquity doth already what? It's already at work. It's alive and it is existent in Paul's day. But don't miss this. Look now. And then shall that wicked, capital W, proper noun, be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his what? Now, please listen carefully. If the man of sin, the son of perdition, the mystery of iniquity, the wicked one, if he existed in Paul's day, and he's going to be destroyed by the brightness of Jesus coming, then does it make sense that the Antichrist cannot be one person? Does that make sense? It has to be a system that has existed for centuries and will be destroyed at the second coming of Jesus. If that's clear, can you say amen? Okay, so let's move on. Is it a worldwide power, folks? Anywhere you go in the world, you can find Coca-Cola and a Catholic church. You can look that up in the Wikipedia. The, the Catholic church, I forget how many countries are recognized by the United Nations, but in every one of those countries, you have a Catholic presence, okay? Did it receive a deadly wound? It did. In 1798, it lost its political influence. But if you are paying attention, I'm not saying it's healed yet, but the deadly wound is healing. The papacy is becoming a player in geopolitics, and it is only a matter of time before it is completely healed according to prophecy. Now, there is something that I'm gonna do tonight that's gonna take two minutes. But I have to do this because on Saturday night, we are gonna unlock a mystery that puzzled Bible students for over a thousand years. They, they had no idea what this was talking about. So let's review. In Daniel 7, we saw the first beast that came up out of the sea was a what? Do you remember? What was the first beast in Daniel 7 that came up out of the sea? It was a lion. There we go. After the lion, there was a? A bear. After the bear, there was a? Leopard. After the leopard, there was? It's just called a fourth beast, okay? And just so that you know, if you read Daniel 7 through, you'll discover that Daniel, he, he receives the vision, 
He asks questions about it, and then the angel explains it. So the fourth beast is mentioned three times there in Daniel 7. I've listed the references there for you on the screen if you'd like to read it. Then after the fourth beast, what's on the head of the fourth beast? Ten horns, right? And they're also mentioned three times because Daniel gets the vision, he asks questions about it, and then the angel explains. What's after the ten horns? The little horn, the eleventh horn, right? That's also mentioned three times. But then what's very interesting is that in every instance that the little horn is mentioned, there's always something mentioned after it. And I'm going to read it for you tonight so that you can see this. I want you to look closely. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn. So we're talking about the little horn. Before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is the very next verse. Look closely. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. So let's review what we just read. We read Daniel 7, verse 8, which talked about the little horn. And then we read verse 9 and 10, and we see this heavenly court scene. Just tuck that in your mind. I'm going to jump down to verse 19. This is where Daniel asks a question. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns, which were in his head, and of the other which came up, before whom three fell. Now you know who that horn is. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and what? Judgment, Judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Okay, so one more. Then he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. That's the little horn. He shall be diverse from the fourth, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand, until a time and times and the dividing of a time. But the what? The judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Now, this may not make sense now, but just remember this. In Daniel 7, you have a lion, you have a bear, you have a leopard, and then you have the fourth beast, which Daniel wants to know about, and so the angel explains it. The angel also explains about the ten horns and the little horns. But every time the little horn is mentioned, every single time, always after it's mentioned, Daniel hears or sees the judgment. And we're going to talk about that on Saturday night, so don't miss why we had to do that. Okay, so now we're changing gears. Are you ready? We are moving into Daniel chapter 8. Now, before I go on, I want to make a point that's important. At the beginning of the seminar, we promised you that if you'll stay with us, we will teach you the major prophecies in the books of Daniel and Revelation. Well, guess what? 
If you read the book of Daniel through as a book, you will discover that the prophetic portions are found in Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, 9, and 11. In this seminar, we have already covered 2, 7, and tonight we're starting chapter 8. And then on Friday night, we're going to cover chapter 9. So I want to just give you a little bit of a perspective on how much progress that you are making on that promise that we made to you of how much of the book of Daniel you will understand. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's talk about Daniel 8. Look closely. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a what? A ram, which had what? Two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up how? Last. I can hear the wheels turning. Let's keep going. Verse 5, and as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and he touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him. And he smote the ram, and he broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and, there, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up how many? Four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. So let's review what we've seen. We see the first animal is a ram. How many horns does he have? Two horns. He's moving, and then all of a sudden, there's a new creature that comes. There's a goat, and the goat comes. He has a big horn. He strikes the ram. Who wins in this contest between the goat and the ram? Who wins? Goat wins. The goat stamps upon the ram, and then this, this goat becomes strong, and then what happens? His horn breaks, and how many come up in its place? Four. Are we together so far? Okay. Then it says, out of one of them came forth a what? A little horn which waxed exceeding great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the pleasant land. Now, I want to just explain something here. When it says towards the pleasant land, the pleasant land was Palestine. It was is the land of Israel. So, I'm going to make this very simple point, but don't miss this. Verse 9, the directions that are mentioned all have one thing in common. They're all horizontal. I don't know which way is south, so don't be confused by this, but he goes south, east, and he goes towards the pleasant land. Does that make sense? Just note that. Verse 10, notice the difference. It waxed great, even to which direction? The host of heaven. So first, the little horn goes like this, like this, like this. Then which way does he go? He goes to fight against God, and it casts down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him, an army, against the daily by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And he said unto me, 
unto 2,300 days, then shall the what? Sanctuary be what? Cleansed. Okay, so I know I read a lot for you, but I'm going to explain it now. In our seminar so far, we have looked at a sequence. And that sequence goes something like this. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Are we together so far? Now, in Daniel 8, there is an actual sequence to this vision. And it goes like this. There's a ram, and then there's a goat, okay? And then there's a little horn, and I'm going to just make this point. In verse 9 of Daniel 8, the little horn just goes like this. And then in verse 10, the little horn goes this way, okay? And then there's something called the cleansing of the sanctuary, all right? So what does this all mean? Well, as we promised, it's not what I think, it's what the Bible says. So let's see what the Bible says. I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, what's the name of the angel? Gabriel, make this man to understand the what? The vision. So look closely. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, understand, O son of man, for at the what? Time of the end shall be the what? Shall be the vision. Okay, so let's pause here for a moment. Do not make the mistake of inverting phrases in the Bible because when you do that, they don't always mean the same thing. Like, for example, God is what? God is love, right? But love is not God. Does that make sense? Like, you can't flip everything in the Bible. In the same way, did you notice it says the time of the end? That's not the same thing as the end of time. It's not the same. So let me explain this to you. I once held a seminar just like this one in Washington State in the little town called Ione. We were actually renting a church facility, just like this one, maybe a little bit smaller. And it was in a residential neighborhood. So the church was on the corner, and the opposite street, the opposite corner of the street, there was a little home, and the kids were playing outside. But they had an unusual pet. It wasn't a dog, it wasn't a cat, they had a pet turkey. It was a male turkey. And you know what I mean by male? Like it had the, you know, the whatever, and big bird. It was very big. By the way, this was the month of October. So let me explain this story to you. This is what I think happened. Sometime earlier that year, the family went to the farm and they picked out a male turkey. It was a small bird at that time. And when they did that, when they brought that turkey home, for that turkey, that was the time of the end. Just follow me, okay? So they brought the turkey home. It was a pet. They fed it. They played with it. All of this, right? Okay, so what happens? Before the fourth Thursday of November, Grandpa is going to take that bird. He's going to go out back. He's going to put it in boiling water going to chop its head off. And when he does, for the turkey, that is the end of time. Now, let me explain the difference. When they brought that bird home, his fate was already sealed. There was no changing what was going to happen to the destiny of that bird. Does that make sense? 
But the end of time comes when the bird dies. Do, do, do you understand that? The angel Gabriel is telling Daniel, Daniel, this vision of the ram and the goat and all of this, this vision is for the time of the end. In other words, this vision is for when you start the ball rolling and there's no chance that it's going to go back. Does that make sense? That's what this vision is about. Let's keep going. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of where? Media and Persia. It's right there in Daniel chapter 8, verse 20. No guessing, no conjecture, no speculation. It's just right there. Now, by the way, let's review. It had two horns. The higher one came up last. Do you remember that? It said the higher one came up last. That's what happened. When Media and Persia first united, Media was more powerful. But nobody's ever heard of Media today. It's the Persian empire that we have movies about and we talk about and we have music about. It's not, so, so this was very, very, very fitting when it said that the higher one would come up last. Then it says, the rough goat is the king of where? Grisha, do you remember last night I told you a story about Alexander the Great? Do you remember that? True story, found in Josephus, there's paintings about it. This is the verse. Now, just remember, the Hebrew Bible doesn't have chapter divisions or verses. But they pointed him to this part of Daniel. And they said, look, we think this is you. And when they said that, he was so pleased that he gave up on the idea of going to kill all of the Jews. He gave up on that. And he said, look, let's be friends. So this is how the Jews, it was through Bible prophecy that they avoided utter annihilation. Very interesting. Then it says in verse 23, now look closely. Now, by the way, are you seeing a pattern? We saw Medo-Persia, and then what comes next? Greece. We saw Greece, right? We saw the ram was Medo-Persia, and then we saw the goat, which was Greece, right? Let's keep looking. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding what? Dark sentences shall stand up. Let's pause. After Medo-Persia, after Greece, what comes next? Rome. Now, some of you are confused. It says here a king, so this is a kingdom that's coming, understanding dark sentences. So here's what happened. When the Jews were conquered by the Romans, the Jews at that time spoke three languages. They spoke Hebrew, they spoke Greek, and they spoke Aramaic. But they did not speak Latin, which is the language that the Romans used. So Daniel 8.20 is describing pagan Rome because it says a king understanding dark sentences. They wouldn't know what he was talking about. And this was the prediction. Then it says, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. This is a new power. And through his po policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace he shall destroy many. This was a description of papal Rome. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, Daniel, unfortunately, doesn't understand everything. How do I know that? Because the angel came and said, the vision of the evening and the morning. Now, I want to pause right here. If you go through your Bible and you start in Genesis, there's an interesting expression. 
It says that after God made the light and the darkness, it says the evening and the morning were the first what? Day. And then if you keep reading, after he made the trees, the evening and the morning were the second day. And then the, you know, the animals, the evening and the morning were the third day and so forth. In the Bible, another way to say day is evening and morning. Does that make sense? So when the angel says to Daniel, by the way, what was the angel's name? Gabriel. When Gabriel says to Daniel, Daniel, this 2,300 evenings and mornings, which I told you about, it's true. Daniel, he fainted. And I was sick. He says he was sick certain days afterward. I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none what? Understood it. Poor Daniel. Scholars say that by Daniel chapter 8, Daniel was probably in his 80s. But something got him excited, and he couldn't handle it, and the Bible says that he fainted. Now, I'm going to stop here tonight, but before I do, I want to close with this passage. The Bible says, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard, that who? Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many what? Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, I want to explain this passage because this has confused some people. When John wrote these words, the Antichrist system existed on earth. The seeds of the papacy were already there. And I want you to know that I believe that when John speaks of the Antichrist shall come, he's speaking about that power described in Revelation 13 and Daniel 7, that little horn power. But then he goes on to add this little, this little addendum. He says, even now are there many antichrists. Let's review. What does the word antichrist mean? It means instead of Christ. So when you talk about the antichrist of Bible prophecy, you are talking about the little horn. You're talking about the beast of Revelation 13. But when you talk about there are many antichrists, folks, I want you to know, there are many ways that Satan gets us to take our eyes off of Jesus. I know people, they, and it's good to work hard, but they work so much, their priority in life is not spiritual things, but their priority in life really is about money and having security. And it's possible that your job can become something that takes the place of Christ if you don't make spiritual things a priority. Does that make sense? I know people that have gotten into relationships that the very relationship that they're in pulls them away from Jesus. You know, and I'm not judging anybody, but when you, when you get united with someone that's not a believer, you inevitably have made that person to take the place of Christ in your life if they pull you away from God. Does that make sense? And I could give you list after list. In other words, the antichrist that John is talking about is anything. It can be pleasure, it can be entertainment, it can be anything that takes the place of Christ in a person's life. That can be instead of Christ or an antichrist in your life. Does that make sense? And before we pray tonight, I want to challenge you. You know, you can go through these seminars, you can learn about all these different things, but if Jesus is not first in your life, 
all of that knowledge will do you no good in the final judgment. And so my challenge to you and my challenge to me tonight is, it is the last days, but if you and I will keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, if we will make Jesus the priority in our life, it doesn't matter what the Antichrist is doing because our life is hid with Jesus, our life is hid with Christ in God. Amen? I want that to be my experience and I want that to be yours. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, this evening, we've talked about some very heavy things. My prayer is that every one of us would go back like a noble Berean and examine the Bible evidence for himself, herself. Lord, as we journey through these prophecies, may it have the effect of not only increasing our understanding of what's happening, but may it drive us closer to Jesus. For we ask all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.